You believe that God is one. Good. Even the demons believe. And they shudder. To me, that's one of the most frightening passages in all of the New Testament. Frightening not because it mentions the reality of demons, that's a reality which we'd normally ignore, but because it highlights a couple of things. Firstly, it highlights that right beliefs on their own are not enough. That believing the truth, and that is it, is not enough. It highlights as well that believing the right things, having the truth, and responding in just some sort of way isn't enough. The demons believe and they shudder. No, it teaches us, it, it shows us that what we need is a faith that is truly married to appropriate action if it's to be of any value to us at all. Why do I say that that's frightening? Well, I, I think it's frightening because for most of us, if we're honest, believing is easier than being. Confession, if you like, is so much easier than our conduct. That living appropriately in light of the truth is genuinely hard. Genuinely sometimes confusing because we live in a world that says and lives completely differently. So when we come to a passage like James chapter 2 verse 19 that tells us faith to be of any use must be married to appropriate action. It can be frightening for us. It can be challenging for us, you might say. We're not moving on from the Great Commission. In fact, we're still knee-deep in it. Matthew 28, 16 says this, Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore you go and make disciples of all nations, baptising them in the name of the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. One of the things that we find in the Great Commission is a continuation of Jesus's obsession, if you like, with Beliefs giving birth to behaviour. Right the way through the Gospels, as we see Jesus interact with his followers, he never seems happy, he never seems content that they simply come to a knowledge of the truth and finish there. What Jesus has in mind is so much bigger, so much better for those who follow him. Think about how he calls these disciples he's now commissioning. When he calls them, he tells them, come follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Come, not just to learn about who I am and what I can do for you, but come and be transformed. Come and be changed. Come and be shaped and moulded to continue the very thing that I have begun to do. Or immediately afterwards, Matthew's chapters 5, 6 and 7, we read, don't we, the Great Commission. Uh, a time when Jesus addressed a larger group of his followers and gave action, action, action. And concluded with these um, famous words. 
Everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Then the rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against the house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears, maybe even agrees, believes in these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain came down, the streams rose up, the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell with a great crash. Soon afterwards, he sends his followers, his disciples out on a, on a taster mission, a sample mission of what might come later. This is what he instructs then. He calls the twelve and he gives them authority to drive out impure spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. Names the disciples. And then Jesus gives them these instructions. Go among the Gentiles. Do not go among the Gentiles or enter any town of the Samaritans. Rather, go to the lost sheep of Israel. And as you go, proclaim this message. The kingdom of heaven has come near. A truth for you to know and to believe in and to, to, to hang your hat on, nail your colours to that mast. Proclaim that and heal the sick. Raise the dead. Cleanse those who have leprosy. Drive out demons. Freely you have received, so freely you should give. See, Jesus wasn't satisfied with folks coming into a knowledge that the kingdom had come near. He wanted them to experience it. He wanted them to, to live in it and to live it out. Jesus was obsessed with it. Later on, the Apostle Paul, he picks up this idea, doesn't he? In fact, you could characterise all of Paul's letters to the New Testament churches and the letters of James and Peter and others as being outworkings of the Great Commission to teach folks how to obey. Not trying to convince people that Christ has come, that Christ is the Messiah, that Christ's death is powerful, that his resurrection is real, that our hope is certain, but how to live and how to respond to that, how to follow him into the fullness of life that he came to give us. And Paul, I think, articulates it so well in Titus chapter 1 verse 2 when he's thinking about his own purpose, his own mission, his own identity. He says that he is an apostle with this sole purpose, this sole aim of furthering the faith of the elect, that their knowledge of their truth would grow and that that would lead them towards godliness. See, Jesus was obsessed with it and, and those first followers, they understood it, that having come to see, having come to trust, having come to believe in who Jesus is and what he has done, that their lives should be, would be, could be transformed. Can I give you one final proof text? <laughs> proof text um, uh, that Jesus gave in the midst of the Sermon on the Mount. This is what Jesus said to them. Beware of false prophets, not a positive term, not a term we want to have and associate for ourselves, who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. 
You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits you will know them. Not by the mere orthodoxy of their words, but by the orthodoxy, the Christ-likeness of their lives. But we, we tend to have prized belief to such an extent that our behaviour has become stunted. That we're so obsessed with knowing the truth, articulating the truth, defending the truth, which is a good thing, that we neglect what is supposed to come after. Let me give you an example of how that plays out in our church life. In our church, as in most churches, we have something called a doctrinal basis, something which briefly summarises, briefly states the sorts of things we believe, and really you could use as a good description of what a Christian should believe. A Christian is someone who has these beliefs about God, that there is one God in three persons, the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit, that God is sovereign in creation, in revelation, in redemption and judgment, has certain beliefs about the Bible, about it being given to us by God through men, it being an authority to us in all matters of belief and behaviour. Certain beliefs about humanity, about ourselves individually and more corporately, that we are sinful, that we are guilty, that we are rebellious and therefore we are rightly subject to God's wrath and condemnation. Beliefs particularly about the Lord Jesus Christ, about him being the incarnate son, fully God, born of the virgin, having a real humanity in his now human and divine nature. The fact that he died on a cross, that he bodily rose to life again, defeating death and now reigns over heaven and over earth and so on and so forth. We have these things, we have this doctrinal basis because we say a church is a place where this is believed. A Christian is someone who believes these things, but... How strange we might find it, how alien it would be to us if we didn't have a doctrinal basis, but we had a behavioural basis. A description of what a Christian truly should live like and look like. No, we'd say that's far too legalistic, that's far too pharisaical. And yet our entire holy book is filled with imperatives, commands, outworkings of the things that we believe that are supposed to therefore be true in our lives. We could just as well, perhaps we should just as well, list the Beatitudes from the Sermon on the Mount. A Christian is someone who mourns, who grieves, who has lost out on things because of their relationship with Christ. A Christian is someone who is poor in spirit, who is humble, who thinks less of themselves and more of their saviour. A Christian is someone who is persecuted, is opposed, finds trouble because of their relationship with the Messiah. We might list on there the fruit of the spirit, of the joy, the peace, the patience, the self-control, the gentleness. A Christian is someone whose life bears witness to those things being a reality. We might do it in opposition to certain things as well. 
in our rooted groups recently, we've been looking at 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 3 um, begins with this description of how the church and Christians should not be. We should not be a people who are lovers of ourselves or lovers of money or boastful or proud or abusive or disobedient to parents or ungrateful or unholy. That we shouldn't be uh, without love, that we shouldn't be unforgiving, we shouldn't be slanderous people. We shouldn't be lacking in self-control, we shouldn't be brutal, we shouldn't be... um, haters of good, treacherous, rash, conceit, all of these things that describe how we live, not just how we believe. Because our beliefs are supposed to shape and guide and instruct our behaviour. Now, So why why was Jesus so obsessed with giving commands and telling people what to do? Well, I, I think of it like this. Jesus is the one who came to rescue us from our life of death, our rebellion, our sinfulness, our turning our back on him and going the other way, our living for self at the expense of everyone around us, that life of death that is a living death and leads to death. Jesus wanted to rescue us from that and achieved a rescue through his life and his death and his resurrection. But Jesus rescued us from it, not just for some future later date, sort of ethereal spiritual release. No, Jesus rescued us from that life of death so that we could live lives which truly are lives of life here and now. So, what does that mean for us then? Okay, remembering the warning of James chapter 2 kind of pausing on that moment in the Great Commission where uh, the task of making disciples is articulated as teaching folks to obey, to live lives that are transformed, that look more like Jesus. What does it mean for us? Well, it means a couple of things. It means first and foremost, although this feels like I'm battling against myself, don't shortcut the truth. That Jesus wants us to be a people who are shaped by him, by what he says and how he lived and the the effects of how he lived. We don't want to bypass his instructions. When we sort of survey our lives, the things that we do, the things that we say, we should want to be a people who can consider and answer the question, well, what did Jesus teach on this? What did Jesus say this should look like? Well, what did it look like in Jesus's life? For example, how do we speak, especially how do we speak about and to those we disagree with? Do we know what instructions Jesus left us? Do we know how people like Paul and Peter and those apostles teased out the truth about who Jesus was and applied it to how we speak? Do we know? Do we go to places like the Sermon on the Mount and find Jesus's crystal clear teaching that though we agree that murder is wrong, those of us who hold and harbour hatred for others in our heart have already committed murder. That those of us who call our opponents fools, that we have pronounced judgment on ourselves. Do we know that? Do we know that Christ calls us 
empowers us to speak well even of our enemies to have speech which is seasoned with salt and grace and love in all of our interactions do we know that we are called to be peaceable rather than disruptive and argumentative and lovers of strife do we know that don't shortcut the truth we need to be a people who continue to seek out and listen to jesus's voice but we can't stop there we need also to be a people who let it work its way out from here to here to here you know knowing that jesus commands us to speak in a certain way knowing that jesus commands us for example to give in a certain way to give without expectation of receiving in return to give without wanting a big song and a dance to be made of it to give in such a way that it's it's secret it's secret and that only you and the father in heaven know about it to know that is one thing but to practice it is another i don't really know like the full-on implication of that but isn't it strange how when we give gifts at birthdays or at christmas we always add a note to say who it's from because we want for some reason in those instances other people to know who it is who's given the gift or you see it oftentimes when grants are being given by certain trusts and charities they'll want a plaque put up or their logo included on future things so that everybody knows this this money this help this assistance has come from a certain place jesus says it shouldn't be like that with you my followers I'm telling you that you should give without any expectation of receiving in return. I'm telling you that you should give even at a great cost to yourself, even at a great cost to your reputation, that no one might know that it might have come from you, but to give in order to bless and to build up those around you. We cannot shortcut the truth. We must seek to know what jesus has to say how what jesus has to instruct but so too we must we must seek to live that out and to not let it stop here but to make its way down here and to flow out into our actions and into our lives but that still begs the question i think how how do we do that how do we truly grapple with um uh, unpack figure out the implications of following jesus in our lives today in our specific contexts in our specific places and roles and responsibilities well here's a thought how did jesus help his disciples to learn how did he bring them to such a place that he was comfortable to instruct them to teach others to take them on as disciples and lead them forward well quite simply he walked and he talked and he lived with them jesus spent flesh on flesh skin on skin time with these people he didn't just preach to them from the sermon on the mount but he he lived with them they got to hear his words and they got to watch him as he went about doing the things that he was instructing them to do and so it should be with us shouldn't it so it should be with us that we do not cut ourselves off and we do not cut others off from us but that we open ourselves up 
to to live and and to be seen to be living after Christ. They listened to him, they watched him. And so in our church life, surely we want exactly the same, don't we? Where we get to come together around God's word, but we also get to see one another following, listening, learning. Because if we think that we're going to do this in isolation, we kid ourselves. The human heart is deceitful above all things. And you lock me in a room on my own to try and decide the implications of what this, this book, the implications of Jesus's life, the implications of Jesus's call on my life are, and I'll get it twisted. I'll get it wrong. I'll neglect certain things and I'll overemphasize others. We need one another. We need to be, therefore, in close proximity to one another. And I know that is difficult, me speaking to you guys online or on the phone at the moment. Um, but it's more than just coming and logging on at the same time, isn't it? Receiving the word at the same time. It's working through it together. And so I would say that there's a call for each of us here, twofold. Number one, to be an example to others. There are elements and aspects of your life where you haven't just believed in Jesus, but now you are behaving after Jesus. You are looking like him. You are modeling him for others. Don't hide that. Get close enough to other people so that they can watch you and they can imitate you as you imitate Christ. Secondly, be an, as some people have called it, an apprentice. An apprentice is someone who comes, draws near to someone else, looks, listens, and then has a go. That that element of trying, of of practicing, is part of their education, is part of their transformation into a fully-fledged electrician or plumber or builder or carpenter or whatever it is. Have a go. Be an apprentice. Be an example, but be an apprentice too. Have a go. Try putting these things into practice. Do you know, this is one of the reasons that we value so much our rooted groups in our church. Rooted groups can be described as Bible studies that happen in people's homes. But they are, they're no less than that, but they are supposed to be so much more than that. They're supposed to be places where we come to God's word and we ask the questions, well, what does this mean for my life? What does this mean for our life? Supposed to be places where we can draw close enough to one another that we can see how it is playing out in one another's life. Perhaps even to call one another out when our lives are not consistent, when our behaviour isn't consistent with our beliefs. That's why rooted groups are so important. We've got to get ourselves close enough to one another that we can watch, that we can learn, that we can imitate, that we can direct and instruct and show just as Jesus did with his disciples. But how can we number two? Well, how can we number two is the same way that these disciples did again. It was because they spent time with Jesus and they were filled with the Holy Spirit. You know, it wasn't a plan B for Jesus to ascend to heaven and to send the Spirit to dwell within his people in his church. Jesus said, it is better for you that I leave. Because a comforter will come and he will lead you into all truth. We need God's word. We need God's people. Let us not neglect God's spirit as well. Who is there to teach, to shape and to refine us. 
I mean, how much do we pursue God by his spirit to be leading us, to be chipping off the rough edges, to be helping us to understand what it means to be a believer where we are today. Jesus promised at the end of the Great Commission to, that they should go out and do this and that he would we be with them until the very end of the age. And I believe what he means by that is that his spirit would come upon the church, his spirit would come upon believers and he would empower us. He would help us to be the believers that Christ has called us to be. So, in summary, let's listen to that warning in James. The warning that beliefs on their own or just response in general aren't enough, but that proper faith needs to be married to an appropriate response. Let's listen to the command of Jesus, which is to go and to teach folks to obey, to live lives that are changed, that are different, to be trees which bear good fruit. Let's seek to do that, not by shortcutting the truth and making up our own ways of living, but to go to Jesus, our Lord, our Saviour, our Master, our Teacher, our Instructor, to listen to his voice. But don't let it stop there. Let us move out. Let's practice. Let's genuinely think of it as a spiritual discipline to set aside half an hour, an hour a day, to deliberately do things differently because of Jesus. Let's do that together in community. Let's not cut ourselves off or cut others off from us. We need the input of one another. And let's do it filled with his spirit. Because his desire is that we would be changed. Jesus wanted us to be rescued from this life of death and, and, and brought into his life abundant. He has sent his spirit to help continue that work that as we grow older, we might grow more into the likeness of Christ. So let's do it together with one another. Let's do it together with his spirit. This is Christ's call, his command on us, his disciples, his church, to be like him, to proclaim him and to help others, therefore, to become like him too. Amen.